Hello, and welcome to this podcast on Turing's Triple Helix, the podcast channel for Scotland's AI strategy. I'm Steph Wright, head of the Scottish AI Alliance team at the Data Lab. Today, I have with me six members of the Scottish AI Alliance Leadership Circle to discuss the draft EU AI regulations released in April 2021. So without further ado, I will pass it to Gillian Doherty, CEO of the Data Lab and chair of the Scottish AI Alliance and our host today for this session. Over to you, Gillian. Thank you very much, Steph, and it's a real pleasure to be here. And I'm so delighted to be joined by some fabulous members of the uh, AI Alliance Leadership Circle. And as Steph said, really interesting discussion I hope we'll have over the next half an hour or so uh, discussing a, a, a really interesting topic, the draft EU AI regulations, which were published on the 21st of April. Uh, some of you watching or listening may not have had a chance to uh, read through the quite significant documents that were published, um, but I'm hoping uh, this fantastic group will take us through some of their reflections um, from their readings of those draft regulations and uh, really hope to share some of their thoughts and ideas. So I'm going to come around each of our uh, members in turn and going to ask each of you to share uh, your key takeaways, the good, the bad, the ugly from those draft regulations. Um, and then we'll, we'll have a bit of a further discussion. So um, I'm going to first come to Callum Sinclair. Callum uh, is the lawyer amongst us. Um, so I'm sure you thoroughly enjoyed uh, reading and digesting those regulations. So Callum, what did you think of them? So maybe I should set the scene by saying that an event about three years ago that we ran, I confidently predicted that there would probably be no one piece of legislation that would attempt to tackle um, artificial intelligence. And uh, literally a matter of months later, um, the, the, the draft uh, AI regulation appeared, um, or certainly the beginnings, beginnings of it. Um, so, so much for lawyers' predictions. Um, as you say, Gillian, published in, in, in 21st of April 2021. So that was, I remember the date, so it was my mum's 70th birthday. Um, and and maybe, maybe I should start just with a wee bit of an overview um, of, of what the, the regulation uh, tries to do and how it's, how it's positioned. It's not uh, law yet, it's a draft. Um, it may not become law um, until perhaps 2024 at the earliest, um, possibly as late as 2026-27, by the time it's gone through the, the EU um, legislative process, I think the Parliament's got at least three runs at it. Um, so, but, but what's been published hopefully gives us a flavour for, for, what's, for what's to come, and it allows businesses um, and governments and others to start planning around what, what it might look like. Now, even although it's not UK law, and it won't be UK law um, as a result of Brexit, obviously the regulations will extend to us, it may form a template, and indeed the EU, I think, intends it to form a template for legislative frameworks for AI around, around the world. Um, and it does have extraterritorial effect as well. So it will affect um, anyone effectively doing business with, with EU citizens or, or anyone through in the course of dealings who affects the rights and freedoms of, of EU citizens. So that's you know, a good number of businesses um, in, in the UK as well. It regulates AI systems. So these are products, if you like, embedding AI as opposed to regulating the AI itself. And we can, we can come back to that to explore a wee bit. And it, it takes a very heavily risk-based approach to, to artificial intelligence. So the, the, the sort of rough rule of thumb is that the more risk associated with the systems, the more rules and regulation will, will apply. And um, there's loosely three categories. Um, so there's unacceptable risk <clears throat> prohibited AI systems, which covers things like um, exploitation of children, subliminal techniques, social scoring by governments, that sort of thing. So they're completely outlawed effectively. Um, high, then there's the, I suppose jumping to the bottom, there's the minimal or low risk categories, which have a very, very light touch um, regulation. So it's really just about you know, embedding principles of fairness and transparency. And then you've got the probably what will make up um, the, the main uh, thrust of the debate, which is around the high-risk systems. So there are a range of, of systems um, that are specified in the regulation, uh, either 
called out specifically um, uh, in, our, in Annex 3 to the regulation or called out as covered by existing EU products regulation in, in Annex 2. Um, and that covers things like um, critical infrastructure, transport, education, border control, that sort of that sort of thing. Um, and I think the rules then focus on, and, and the bulk of the regulation actually focuses on what what, what ought to apply to um, those high risk um, AI categories. Um, and we can come on to discuss that, but but loosely, um, you, there's there's a system of registration of products. There's continuous uh, putting in place continuous risk management systems. There's quality, you know, ensuring quality training data. There's technical documentation, transparent user documentation, um, you know, effective human oversight, you know, ensuring that systems are accurate, robust, and secure, and so on. So there's a good um, uh, you know, body of rules there that apply to the high risk systems. And then finally, just maybe by way of a sort of intro, um, the enforcement regime. So, so some of the figures being bandied around are, are you know, GDPR-esque, if I may say that. So, um, in fact, beyond GDPR, it will, it will ultimately be up to member states to set their enforcement regimes around fines that have been prescribed in the draft regulation. Um, but potentially, they could go as high as, assuming that, the, that things don't alter, it could go as high as 30 million um, euros or 6% of uh, annual global turnover um, for breaches in the unacceptable risk category or um, in the data governance category of, of high risk systems and, and 20 million um, or 4% of global turnover for the um, high, risk, high risk breaches. So I've, I've got some views on, on the regulation. I'm, I'm very happy to share those, but I, I thought I would introduce it first and then you can maybe come back to me for some, for some thoughts afterwards. I'm very keen to hear others views on the regulation itself. Sure, ab absolutely. Thanks, Callum. That, that's great in terms of setting the scene. And I wonder maybe if we could come to Katrina next. Um, Katrina, you know, extensive business experience and, and looking at it from a business perspective, what, what are your key takeaways? Uh, well, first of all, I'm speaking as an individual rather than representing EY, my position as CTIO of the UK and Ireland. So first I want to say, like Callum, incredibly um, excited about, about this becoming regulation. Um, I think the draft is as good a draft as I've ever seen. And it kind of follows the way that GDPR came about in the EU. Draft regulation, lots of discussion around it. And then that GDPR regulation that the EU provided has now become the de facto um, globally. Right, Callum? So, I mean, an incredible piece of early regulation that is now being adopted elsewhere. So let's hope that this also becomes adopted elsewhere. I would very much welcome that. So from a business perspective, as Callum said, what it means is the regulation um, that, that will come into effect will apply to any business that does business, any provider that does business with the EU. Gosh, that is huge, right? Also any business within the EU. So this absolutely impl implicates people in the UK doing business in the EU. And most likely, we will have some form of regulation ourselves at some point. Okay, so what I what I welcome then is I welcome the fact that this regulation, as Callum said, will ensure that business applies rules and values these guidelines. Now, what I also think will be problematic is the application of those internal controls. So internal controls frameworks are, it's, it's an important part of big corporations, right? Really important part. However, to maintain those high quality data sets, to have the, the, the data sets that are trained, that are validated, that are tested, that are, that are ensured to, non, to not include biased data and information, for instance, will mean that you have to have an incredibly resilient workforce. You have to have a workforce that understands this stuff, that has the right level of documentation in place, and the technical documentation that's going to go around these trained AI, um, these the, the different AI data sets in the business, 
is going to mean um, you know some incredible talents got to be got to be built and retained by an organization. So I think what we're looking at here, actually, Gillian, is we're looking at not just is this you know fantastic regulation, but business are now going to have to, from startups all the way through to global corporations, they're going to have to have the right talent and the right internal controls. So I'm excited about that. That will make, mean a sea change within organizations. They're going to have to really pay attention to this or, as Callum said, expect fines, right? And and it does apply to everyone, you know, as I said, startups. So whew, it's a big task, which is why, Callum, I probably would welcome it being a little bit longer <laughs> in terms of the regulation. You know, when it does come into law, it would be great if it was 2026 because this is going to take business a little while to grasp and to um, to change, you know, internally to, to make sure that they can deliver on this promise. Yeah, I, very, I, much, very much welcome it. Great. Now, that, I think that's a, a really interesting aspect on the, the talent. And um, I'm probably going to come to, to Michael Rovatsos next because I think that there's um, from Edinburgh University and, and Vice Principal of Research, I think there's there's an academic research angle to this, but there's also a talent angle. How, how do you see our academic institutions um, dealing, reacting, uh, and, and obviously you you have a, a kind of global uh, nature in the work you do. You have campuses around the world um, and you work with organisations in and around Europe, Michael. So so what can you share your perspectives on this? And you're on mute. <laughs> yes, this always happens, doesn't it? Um, uh, thanks, thanks, Julian. Uh, I, I think... Uh, I'd like to start by saying that this is, uh, it's very welcome to see this um, piece of proposed regulation uh, from the standpoint also of, of just myself as an AI researcher, because I think it also sends out a very clear signal to the world, which is we can actually control how we use these new technologies as a society and as a big market and in the geopolitical landscape, we need to do that at a European level because that will give us the force of the market to actually have a global impact. Um, so that's that's extremely important, I think. Uh, from a university point of view, well, the first, the first positive thing there is that research is exempt. Um, which is, of course, great news. So, so I think, and and I'm saying that kind of slightly um, tongue in cheek, but but on a more on a more serious level, I think one thing this regulation does is that it really focuses on products and services, and on when these are brought to the market, and rather than focusing on the um, the actual methods that are behind them or the innovations, it actually puts the onus on those who are bringing them to market to ensure their safety, uh, depending on the level of risk. Now, that I think from an innovation standpoint will give us enough of a flexibility to work in academia and in industry and in government on developing the new innovations. And I think there's also very useful proposals in the draft around sandboxes and around uh, making those available to SMEs and startups. And I think that's very, that's very welcome. We'll have to work through what that will look like in practice and uh, but i do think there is there is something that's um complicated around how products that embed ai technologies how they um work as kind of through through sometimes fairly complex relationships between vendors embedding components ai components in other products and certainly the need here for upskilling and education and capability across different industries is um will be very big and you know as a university of course we will we will engage with that and try to contribute what we can but i think there is something um that is worth discussing in terms of what resources and effort and cost this will require from which players. So in some sense, what I see happening is that the tech industry, if I can say that in a more generalized way, uh, to a large extent in the past, hasn't put in these safeguards in place. Um, and I think what might happen now is that businesses in other sectors who will use these technologies and who might actually not have the expertise yet 
will be expected to do the impact assessment, to do the risk assessment, to vouch for their products, and will, of course, be looking for reassurances from those suppliers in the tech industry. So I think it's going to be a very interesting conversation around who will acquire these skills, who will provide these services um, of, of safety and risk assessment and audit, uh, and how we will deal with that across the economy. And I think there is a... Um, it's a challenge that's posed to us collectively as a as a as the as an economy uh, in Scotland, but also a great opportunity around how we can work together to really embed that capability across sectors and work with government and civic society um, to turn this into uh, reality. If we succeed, however, I think then um, we will have managed something quite amazing, which is that we will be able to tell our citizens across Scotland and the UK and Europe um, that we actually have a democratically driven, joint, collective and responsible approach to using AI safely um, in our societies and for our citizens. A critical point I would like to make is that as an AI researcher, I'm a little bit worried that while the need for regulation is obvious for lots of certain categories of products, that the, the it's all kind of um, the proposed framework hangs it off AI as what's inside these applications. Uh, and I think there's a bit of a worry there that, uh, you know, people might shy away in terms of innovation from AI as it will be seen to be associated with um, risk. And I would rather we actually focus more on, as, as lar a large part of the regulation does, on the applications rather than on the methods that drive them. Because in my view, to some extent, it doesn't really matter that much whether, you know, your, your uh, credit scoring system is unfair because there's a machine learning algorithm inside it or because there are some you know, biased decision makers making the decisions. What we need to provide is we need these tools to be fair and safe and uh, uh, prevent harm. Uh, and so that does worry me a little bit. Uh, and it also worries me that some people might say then, oh, well, you know, then we're gonna bring competitor market products to the market that don't use AI. Mm. And they might then be exempt from regulation. So I think that will require further discussion to make sure um, we're actually actually focusing on the risk and on protection of rights and uh, and um, and values rather than on the technology, if that makes sense, um, yeah. that drives some of these products. No, th thank you, Michael. I think um, we'll maybe circle back to that that interesting relationship you you highlight between um, partners, suppliers. Uh, vendors, those, those types of things. Um, but but Michael uh, Boniface, I'd like to bring you in from a I guess a, a broader business perspective and and maybe to share your reflection. Uh, obviously, you work with a, a lot of uh, startup scale ups um, and, and digital and technology companies in Aberdeen and and then the the buyers of those types of technologies in the in the region. What's your thoughts on the regulation? Yeah, so I mean, I'm really mostly interested in the impact that regulation is going to have on startups. You know, the risk-based approach um, taken by the regulation, which allocates these products into one of the four categories, you know, puts that heavy admin burden on those at the high-risk category. You know, such as the extensive risk uh, management systems, the complete documentation sets, and the and the somewhat questionable 100% error-free systems uh, that are required there. For the medium and low-risk categories, you know, Article 69 of the regulation outlines a code of conduct. My question would be, what dangers are there that the more onerous admin overhead from the high-risk categories won't then bleed into the lower-risk lower groups? And is the acknowledgement of such a possibility then enough to dissuade a startup from locating within the EU. Uh, the penalties, as mentioned, you know, are extensive with that, you know, higher than 6% of global turnover. And from the GDPR 
um, cases that have come through, it, it does look at the global turnover of the company, not just the business unit operating or, or the 30 million. You know, it would appear that when you look through it, even, even if all the other criteria have been met within your product, it suggests that just something as simple as insufficient documentation alone uh, would be enough to push you into non-compliance. So as an entrepreneur, you know, these aspects of the regulation would concern me and, and make me seriously consider where I would I would set up my company. Um, there is there is a, a balance obviously struck as well. The um, Digital Europe and the Horizon Europe programs promise to deliver billions in, in euros in funding. And then the changes to the 2018 coordinated plan are designed to coordinate EU member states into support for AI development through the regulatory sandboxes, um, the co-funding testing experimentation uh, centres. There is also provision for a, a network-wide a network digital innovation centres, and you know, similar to the recommendation that we saw come out of the Scottish Technology Ecosystem Report that, that was published last year. So, you know, is this enough to counterbalance the potential administrative overhead that could face these new companies? I mean, I don't know, but I, I'm really keen to wait and see how this unfolds and, and we'll see how that balance strikes. Because even though the regulation isn't going to come into force for several years yet, as we discussed, you know, the, the impact and the planning for that will be starting today. Yeah. Yeah, Th thank you, Michael, for those thoughts. And 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 finally, um, uh, we'll come to Marion Scott. Uh, Marion, again, uh, I guess an academic research uh, background yourself, uh, at the University of Glasgow, um, but with a particular focus on on the in the work you do around the environment and uh, net zero and uh, the challenge we have in the climate emergency. Do, do you see anything in the regulation that that can I guess? Um, support bolster help that the, the kind of the use of ai technologies in addressing that climate emergency by having the guide you know the, the guidelines and the should we say the um guardrails should we have you know in, in in the classic kind of bowling lane analogy the guardrails around how companies and organizations can work together um, both in europe but obviously uh out beyond globally as well um, thanks, Gillian. Uh, you're right in the sense of um, my experience has been um, in the environmental sphere um, and more recently, obviously, with the, the climate emergency, net zero and biodiversity losses and so on. However, I, I do quite a lot of work looking at just more generally environmental regulation. Um, and I'm a member of one of the European committees, scientific committees that provides advice on emerging environmental and human health risks and so I'm, I'm very comfortable with the concept of a piece of regulation built around a risk-based approach um, and certainly in the in kind of environmental arena um, we have a very strong if you like principle based on what's called the precautionary principle so in terms of providing if you like um, regulation based on a risk assessment which might not be complete but where we have if you like limited evidence or are actually actively seeking further evidence um, to make regulation to avert harm uh, and to deal with risk which might not be fully developed yet um, I think it's really challenging um, when I read this particular document it's challenging eh, because it's got quite a lot of language that's quite um, challenging to really read from you know, page to page, and it's quite long. Um, but there were one or two things that stuck out for me quite a lot. Um, you know, when I think about environmental regulation, we have across Europe, within the UK, um, we have very strong, if you like, regulatory agencies whose, um, if you like, task is effectively to monitor um, compliance, to manage um, operations, to ensure that um, we are protecting whatever it is we're trying to protect, whether it be water courses, or in this case, whether in fact, it, for instance, is, is children. Um, and so, as I said, I found it really interesting to think about the comparators that we would need from a, a risk-based regulatory um, approach in the environmental context of what's being proposed here. Um, and I think about the nature of 
the organisations that exist and that are really quite um, well developed, like the European Food Standards Agency, um, as I said, like the um, environmental risk committees that the European Commission have set up, which have some oversight into um, how regulations are updated, for instance, with new pesticides or new chemical substances and so on. So I feel that there's probably a lot of learning that can get pulled over into this sphere. Um, and as I said, I think the, the principles are really sound from this risk-based approach. Um, we need to think about how we assess those risks and we need to think about who carries the burden of those risks. Um, and we also need to think about situations where, as I've said, it's fine and dandy to have everything on a piece of paper saying we've got all of these regulations, it has you know, gone into law, um, but you actually need to be monitoring it and you need to be updating it and you need to be moving with um, the developments in this fast developing sphere. You know, I, I was, um, in particular, I've got up in my screen at the minute, um, the definition in Annex 1 for this piece of regulation of artificial intelligence techniques and approaches. Um, and as I said, um, I think I was really taken by what um, Michael said with respect to maybe we should be less concerned about the specific techniques that are being listed or mentioned, but think about the system that's being used irrespective almost of what's in that system. Um, but I think when I read the document, there seemed to be a an implication that um, there really was a desire to kind of begin to tie down what is artificial intelligence or what are artificial intelligence techniques. Um, you know, and as a statistician, when I see something that says statistical approaches, I mean, that covers everything. Uh, it, you know, so it, there's a kind of um, a challenge there as well. And, and I think it's probably worth saying that, you know, with the best will in the world, regulatory processes are only as good as you actually are monitoring and maintaining. Um, and again, coming back to the environmental context, um, you know, sometimes our environmental regulations transfer the burden to a country that, for instance, is not part of the EU. Uh, and this is going to be global. So we do need to be, I think, very conscious of that. And I think Scotland and the UK and anyone else who wishes to be working with Europe, you know, we need to be thinking about ways that either we can adapt or adopt um, this to ensure that we can keep doing business and that we're complying. But where we see areas that need to be improved, that we can also begin to think about improving those for ourselves. Thanks, Julie. Great, great. Thanks, uh, Marianne. And. Um, I'll probably just come back to to you, Callum. Now we've we've gone round and and got the thoughts of of the rest of the the panel members at the moment, and really just to to take your key takeaways. You you know at the start you shared the some of the background, um, and if you can, you know we've touched on the implications. Even though um, following Brexit, we are not the regulations won't necessarily apply here but it will impact so many of our organisations because they work and do work in Europe. Um, so can you share a bit more of your thoughts, key takeaways, what we could learn from the, the draft regulations uh, and, and, and should we just go all in and say, well, we're we should comply anyway, fully? So thank you for that. And it's great, I've sort of very deliberately held back listening to views of the panel <laughs> um, so I can sweep in with um, all of their views. No, uh, uh, I think I think the, the first thing to say is I think it's a really bold um, approach, and it, and I do agree that it has um, it's moved the debate on. So this is part of a wider um, digital Europe initiative, um, encompassing various bits of legislation around digital services, digital markets act, data governance act, um, and Europe is taking a very the EU is taking a very bold approach. Um, here at the moment. This is really the first of its kind as a legal framework. There's plenty of principles-based um, statements and guidance, but this is the first um, attempt at a draft legal framework, and, and I think it's got to be applauded for that. Um, I think it, that the effect of that is that it does it does move the debate on past the how we should do it and whether we should do it onto the actual text. Um, I think one of the um, 
results of that, of course, is that it's you know there are parts that you can start to sling mud at, <laughs> um, and but but it's great to have that straw man so we can we can we can kick off that proper debate because I I'm I'm absolutely convinced that AI does need regulation, um, and it's just you know the, the measure of 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 what it should be and how far it should go. So I think it's to be applauded for that. That's the good. Um, I think uh, you know. I, I've heard a few criticisms of the of the act in its current form. Um, some of these may be dealt with um, uh, in the ultimate draft, um, and indeed some of the my esteemed panel members here have, have raised a few concerns so far. Um, just to pick up on a few of those, and some of these are mine and some are other people's. But but um, so there's no no mention of AI in military applications whatsoever. So that's just been put to one side. Um, which is obviously a concern. Um, there is some, there is some fairly ambiguous language in parts of the, the regulation, and it's taken a very much a GDPR approach, which is to say, um, some of that will be fleshed out in practice and guidelines and by member states. Um, and I think, that personally speaking, I think that is whilst some may see that as a disadvantage, it does provide some flexibility in the regulation. So maybe good or good or bad, um, it doesn't. Unlike some of the other um, European regulation uh, of late or draft regulation of late, it doesn't it doesn't tackle big tech uh, at all. Um, some of you know Digital Services Act, which the Markets Act takes on big tech, US big tech typically head on. Um, but obviously there are some serious challenges around um, algorithms forming part of social media and fake news and all that uh, jazz. And and you know that it doesn't mention big tech. It's really really not going after big tech. Um, and again, that could be seen as you know a, a broader application, or it could be seen as a as a failing. Um, there is a slight risk, as there was with GDPR, that it becomes a box ticking exercise. So we do need to be slightly careful of that. There's a heavy emphasis on self-regulation, and certainly privacy. You know, depends who you speak to. If you speak to certain privacy campaigners, they think the regulation's gone nowhere near far enough, in, in really getting to the nub of 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 controlling how these systems are rolled out. If you speak to others. You know that's a necessary part of you know the flexibility and innovation that I think Michael was talking about. So you know that's that's you know again potentially some good and bad in there. I mean it is very much aimed at corporates and governments. It's you know there's there's been a notable lack of attention on remedies for individuals affected by AI decision making, for example. So the individuals, I mean that there's quite a lot in the recitals about. And the sort of democratic values, and you see this in, right through the, the OECD principles, the the US and UK declaration. You know, all of them are very heavy on, um, you know, embodying embodying democratic principles. But when when you actually drill down to the detail of the regulation, there isn't actually a whole lot that protects individuals there, um, and individuals might need to look to other routes um, for some of that. Um, but but I think it's a great I think it's a great start. Um, I'll watch the debate, and if there's an opportunity, possibly through this group, we'll, we'll contribute to the debate um, around the direction of travel. I think there's a lot that Scotland uh, and the UK could take away, and I suppose the interesting thing for me is, is just to what extent the UK or Scotland tries to do a different thing, <laughs> um, just because we're a, we're a Brexit UK at the moment, um, and we want to go our own way, and certainly the, the mood music at the moment is that um, certainly, Boris Johnson's government is pushing, is, is railing against. They, they want to use the um, Brexit as an opportunity to deregulate a bit. So, so whether they that follows a pattern with AI and this takes an even lighter touch in the UK, don't know. But the point is, we've got something. We've now got a template. We've got something to um, to, to to throw mud at or or to, to applaud in certain areas and to mimic. So. Um, it's it's the absolutely the right thing to do. It's the right start for the debate, and I'll you know I'll watch and hopefully contribute with interest. I guess, uh, Katrina, I'm going to come to, to you next. But um, we have had one of the uh, other leadership circle members join us, Julie. So, Julie, I'll I'll come to you after Katrina to share your thoughts uh, on key takeaways from the regulation. But but first of all, Katrina, over to you. Just a quick comment, thinking about the audience who's um, watching this videocast. You know, this could be seen as a great opportunity, Gillian, and fellow panel members, for people who are listening to this to think to, to themselves, you know something, if this kind of level of debate is happening here in our, our region of the world, we have the opportunity in Scotland to harness 
some of our amazing talent and think, you know what, maybe this is the start of something. Maybe there are roles, maybe there are, there are careers to be made in the back of this. Because I liken um, my, my personal business success was all down to the start of the web accessibility standards that happened in the year 2000, the web content accessibility guidelines. Now, people listening to this may not be familiar with those, but it's effectively, how do you design the World Wide Web to be accessible? accessible for anyone of any ability. And really in the early days, we were creating all sorts of websites and web applications that were horrendous and broke all sorts of, of potential rules and things. And it wasn't until we started getting together with Europe and they created the, the WCAG guidelines and the EU Web Accessibility Initiative was born. And that created a huge, it galvanized all of the web producers and web developers and people who worked online to start to think, you know, actually, you know, this is actually a career, you know, this is becoming law. And if we're going to um, apply proper standards to web development, hey, you know, th this is being taken seriously now. So for those of those are our colleagues who are listening to this, I think, you know, have read the guidelines, listen to what, you know, the, the debate out there, but think to yourselves, is this an opportunity to further my career, to think really carefully about what do I want to do in this? Because this is now serious business. If there's fines and we're talking about regulation, it's here to stay. So I just wanted to mention that, you know, it's not all negative. There's lots of positives for Scotland and these amazing uh, individuals out there working in AI. Yeah, ab absolutely. I think, uh the the fact that we're having this discussion and that the draft regulations are there and the intention is there. Um, I think, Michael, you'd said earlier, you know, is it going to put people off? It could, it could well have partially the opposite effect. It encourages people because it's not going to be the Wild West and, you you know, people can do what they like to you and your data and, uh, and make decisions about you. But uh, I'm going to I'm going to bring Julie in now. Julie, it would be great if you could, if you can, turn your, your camera on and uh, and share your reflections on the draft regulations. Yeah, I'm Tyson Preston, yeah. Um, I've got mixed views about all these regulations um, just because I think it just doesn't seem a kind of consistent and universal approach. Everybody interprets the, the, the regulation differently. Um, it depends which organisation you speak to. Uh, my, my current role is working with the government sector and they seem to go down with the line of the UK um, public sector um, web um, guideline that was published in 2018. I haven't seen much in the way of how that guideline is enforced with um, public sectors across the UK at the moment and with my current role stuff I see the kind of design. Well obviously I'm heading up the new role for accessibility in that area now um, to inclusive design. And I wondered if, if inclusive design is going to be something that's going to be big compared to universal design because it, 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 it's open to interpretation. Yeah, no, it's. I, I think there's there's some significant content in there and the intention mm. around fairness and inclusive and um, and I wonder, Michael Ravatsos, if if you could come in, I think, uh, you know, you your work and and the work of others in in the kind of research space and and the significant work the university does in in inclusivity and and you've got a fantastic course on on data. Uh, ethics uh, and AI, uh, if you would like to come in on, on the inclusive elements and, and bias and, and ethics, I think is is a really interesting perspective. Uh, absolutely. And I'd, I'd, I'd really, um, you know, some of the th Katrina's thoughts really, really resonated there with me in terms of, you know, looking at this as an opportunity. And I think um, so from the standpoint of, you know, Scotland, really leading on ethical AI and responsible AI uh, and, and inclusion, which actually is mentioned sometimes in the high level principles of different countries and organizations. Um, you know, it's not, it's not mentioned as prominently as in the Scottish AI uh, national strategy. Um, and I think there is, you know, we could ask ourselves the question as a nation, um, what if we were kind of the best place in the world where every 
every new startup actually can explain why what it does and what it's working on is good for society and is benefiting society. But also, what if we could say we've got the um, high, uh, a very highly skilled workforce in terms of being able to audit these technologies, and that's a range of skills. That's not just you know computer scientists and data scientists. That's people who understand governance, people who understand law and regulation, people who understand business processes, people who understand you know how to document complex um, processes in organizations, and and among other things, also people who understand uh, impact on society and inclusion. Um, you know, could we could we think about, for example, how we rather than trying to de-risk something that might be potentially risky, could we do the opposite and say, we're going to build AI for inclusion, we're going to build AI for net zero, we're going to build a and and in those cases when you because I'm sure that you know whenever there is a debate about a system and if somebody ends up going to court over some specific. Uh, problem that arises somewhere, there will be always uh, people will look at the balance between benefit and harm. And I think we'll be in a much better position if our we 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 are collectively kind of committed to doing good things with technology and not, you know, doing something that kind of sounds like it would be a cool idea because we really like the tech and it sounds like it's really novel. And then we work out, you know, after the fact that, you know, it excludes lots of people or it causes harm to the environment or it, it creates discrimination in, in society. So um, I, I think that's that's really kind of, you know, almost kind of a call to arms to say. Mm. And, and I, I appreciate, you know, the, Callum's comments on, you know, we're not taking on big tech, but is there and, and we should. Where, where we are seeing harms being done. Um, but is there uh, an opportunity to do new tech that is different from that legacy of, of people being rather careless and, 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 uh, and sometimes not actually responding to the challenges of society uh, in a responsible way? And I think that's a, big, that's a big thing also for business. Sometimes people are not outraged by the fact that something in industry goes wrong they're outraged by the fact that they're not listened to and that they're not they don't have methods ways ways to address their concerns and to be compensated or you know to be supported by the public institutions that will help them in their dealings with um, industry or or the authorities um, and so I think you know the for me the I, I can sense that in our society, there is now much more awareness of, you know, business, government, academia pulling together for the social good. Uh, and I think this, uh, the regulation sets the right tone. Yeah, I, I think uh, that opportunity angle, uh, maybe come to to Marianne, Marianne uh, around, uh, do you see the the opportunity for some of the work that you do and the engagements that you have in bringing that 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 triple helix together of government, industry, and academia? Absolutely, I think that's really really important. Um, I think the you know I, su I suspect that at least historically we've often kind of almost been a bit siloed and the communication channels have not always been as good as they could be. Um, but I think that, you know, we recognise that some of the big challenges that we have really require effort on many fronts. Um, and, you know, the starting point of those efforts is actually coming together and, and talking about what the challenges are, obviously informed by your own experience and skill set, but understanding um, the different aspects of a problem and working towards a solution really requires this, um, I think, team effort uh, in that sense. And um, the, you know, I think with respect to this particular piece of um, draft regulation um, that's outlined here, um, for me, I think, you know, from a from a Scottish and or UK perspective, um, I think it's a really, as, as, as several people have said, you know, it, it's something there for us to take apart, decide what works, 
decide what we could make work for ourselves, decide also where we might think there could be room for improvement or um, adjustments that would need to be made given the circumstances that we're dealing with. Uh, from that point of view. And I think, you know, some of the language in the regulation talks about things being proportionate. And absolutely, we accept risk every day because we also welcome the benefit of whatever the risky activity actually is that we're undertaking. And I think that um, from a, a social perspective, it's the articulation of the benefit um, because we often all we see are the headlines about the risk but it's also the articulation of the benefit that I think is going to be really important here. Yeah, th thank you, Marion. So um, we're, we're going to come back round just for a quick final thought from, from everyone. Um, as as we kind of laid out, this could be in discussion, debate, uh, the ins, the outs for, for several years to come. So this won't probably be the last conversation, uh, certainly not, that we'll have on this. But, but Michael Boniface, I'm going to come to you, just final reflections uh, and then come round the, the panel and uh, conclude today's uh videocast michael uh yeah so i think in the in the context of, of scotland uh, and particularly um you know there, there's a clear strategic ambition in scotland to build develop attract digital companies and certainly um fully resonate with with, with michael's comment about you know building good tech i mean, we want to build good tech companies um you know and uh, in order to achieve this you know scotland needs to reduce friction for the building and scaling of companies who have limited resources. You know, the EU are hoping, um, I think it was Katrina's point earlier on, the EU are hoping this will become a global standard for AI regulation. And, um, you know, similar changes in the US to the FTC guidelines, you know, may indicate that there is at least some appetite for a widely accepted um, set of standards. So um, I think we need to wait and see. Um, I really like Marianne's point of, um, you know, bringing in the pieces that are relevant, um, that can support our ambition. And yes, I would really encourage that, you know, we we keep that, uh, the, the Scottish strategic ambition of, of building and scaling companies, we keep that at the core of, of any legislative decisions that, um, that we may take down the line. Great. Th thank you, Michael. Um, Julie, do you have any final thoughts yeah, to share? I was, yeah, I was when I was looking at uh, listening to Michael's comment, I, I totally did it, but including everything. But one of my, my, one of my concerns will be about um, artificial intelligence, but all about the, the, um, the kind of depository of all this data. How is it going to store it safely and how is it going to be accessible? How, how accessible it's going to be able to retrieve that the, um, depository of artificial intelligence once it's stored, how is Scotland going to manage that and how is it going to be, um, if, um, how is it going to be connected to kind of the ethics too much of artificial intelligence. I think that will put a lot of person will be weighed down that aspect as well. Yeah, no, a really interesting um, reflection on on that. Thank you, Julie. Um, uh, and Michael Ravatsos. So I th I think um, you know my final thought would be that we 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 might have a great opportunity here in the Scottish context to actually do something that puts us kind of uh, at the forefront of the wider conversation. Uh, and what I'm thinking of here is we've got the skills, we've got the startups, we've got the big, big corporate partners to kind of test some innovation models here that would work and, you know, answer the questions that we are all raising where we are uncertain and where uh, certainty is likely to uh, only come much later. But I'm thinking, you know, if we if we could if we could pull the, these kind of the expertise we have together and test approaches to risk assessment, um, auditing, and uh, you know the the uh, risk benefit analysis uh, locally, um, we could play a key role in in shaping this um, rather than rather than wait for a few years until it's kind of imposed on us. I think that's a real opportunity in the national AI strategy. Yeah, getting getting a step ahead. Uh, Marion, any final thoughts from you? Uh I don't think I've got much extra to add. As I said, I think I, I agree absolutely with what Michael said. I think actually working through some use cases um, would begin to um, allow us to develop ideas 
um, experience in how such a regulation, were it to be um, implemented in some variant within the UK, um, how it might operate. And I think that's probably going to be a very valuable experience to have. Great. And Katrina? Well, um, nothing really to add other than what my colleagues have said. Just thank you very much indeed for including me in this. As, uh, as Michael said, I think we have an incredible opportunity to embrace this and to really differentiate using our amazing talent in Scotland, how we could uh, help this, uh, help the corporates, the startups um, with uh, the inclusion uh, agenda, as you said, Julie, the inclusive design agenda around this. So great opportunity, I think, Gillian. Great. And, and final words to Callum. I'm honoured. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, I suppose I would just see this as a brilliant start point um, for, for, for the, the right debate to be having. Um, and it's great that we've got the, the straw man um, to, to, to move forward with. Um, I think it will allow businesses who, I think as a few have, have mentioned on this call, we need to start planning for this now because there will be some variation of this coming in the UK. And even if even if there weren't, you know, in order to trade in Europe, you you need to start planning for for this now and to start embedding that sort of um, ethics and AI, uh, in AI systems by design uh, from the outset. Um, I suppose I would just I wouldn't be a lawyer if I didn't finish on a slight note of doom, which is is maybe to uh, to, to be aware of what's happened with GDPR and and everybody kind of got very obsessed about about large fines, and there have been a couple of examples of that, but actually the reputational risk of getting this wrong and the, um, I suppose more recently, the advent of, of data class actions, which are likely to have far much further reaching consequences, you know, you, you cannot afford to get this wrong. So you do need to start thinking about this, this right now. Um, so there's my note of doom for a, for a lawyerly finish. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I, I would hope to, to bring us back from that moment and really reflect on the fact that we see it as opportunity. We can see a chance for us to get ahead of the game. Um, it's a great to have that starter for 10. Um, we've talked about the importance that we see for Scotland uh, and the chance for us to excel. And, and back to the, the, the tagline of the AI strategy for Scotland, you know, trustworthy, ethical and inclusive. It, it really is at the heart of what we are trying to do at the AI Alliance with your help in the leadership circle. So uh, finally, just a huge thank you to, to Callum, Katrina, Michael, Marion, Julie and, and Michael. Um, thanks for joining us. I hope you've enjoyed the discussion and uh, more to come. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. Yeah, Bye. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. -bye.